there. Welcome to Faith in Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. If you've had the chance to listen to the first two episodes, you'll know that we've been reflecting on the class structures of our workplaces in terms of relationship and power. We've been investigating how our workplace relationships are organized and how decision-making power is distributed at a capitalist pizza parlor, tech company, clothing manufacturer, you name it. The places of work that we ourselves, our loved ones, our friends from church, and people all over the world spend the majority of their waking hours at, as well as the businesses we buy all our needs and wants from every day. And in this episode of Faith and Capital, we're going to begin a two-part series that will wrap up our discussion on employer-employee relations by offering one response to the question, why might any of this matter? What's at stake? Especially if a person's got a job, a car, and they're taking a vacation this summer, why might anyone care about the differentials of power between employers and employees? Today, I want to talk about employer power, the power that employees are excluded from democratically sharing in, and in particular, the reality of unemployment. And while you may be thinking to yourself, unemployment has nothing to do with me, I've always had a job and I've never been laid off, so sad story, but not my problem. I want to suggest that unemployment not only gravely affects the lives of those denied work or those who end up laid off, but it also affects the lives of people who have jobs, the well-being of working people, including their families and communities. And as odd as it may sound, I thought the story of Tamar and Judah might help us think about all this unemployment stuff and even more, the differentials of power between employers and employees that exists even at that dope coffee shop you went to just the other day. Wait a second. You mean the story where God kills off brother number two for masturbating on the ground instead of impregnating his sister-in-law, his dead brother's widowed wife? Yep, that's the one. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's take it from the top. I don't think it's random that the story of Judah and Tamar is where it is in the book of Genesis. This story seems to be strategically placed in the middle of a much longer narrative. Just before the plight of Tamar jumps onto the scene, Judah convinces his brothers to sell his younger brother, Joseph, into slavery for a prophet instead of leaving him to die in a ditch. The sons of Jacob are trying to dispose of Joseph, and if they happen to make a profit while doing so, well, that doesn't sound that bad either. And following the story of Tamar, Joseph is disposed of again, but this time by a powerful officer of the dominant empire named Potiphar, who was convinced to do so by nameless Potiphar's wife. The point of all this is just to say that the story of Tamar being disposed of is an interruption of another story where Joseph is continually disposed of, which seems to suggest that the authors and editors of these biblical texts must have felt really connected to the raw experience of being discarded and thrown away, the experience of being rendered invisible by people with the power to do so. And 
the way both of these narratives end, it's also not unreasonable to assume that they believed the divine deeply cares about those who are rendered disposable. We'll chew on this a little more in part two. For now, let's stick with the story. Judah and his nameless wife, who is identified by her relation to the powerful men in her life, the wife of Judah and Shua's daughter, have given birth to three boys. And Judah feels it's time for them to get out into the dating scene and make some babies. So Judah finds a wife for his firstborn, and her name is Tamar. But Judah's firstborn, Ur, whose name is actually a play on the word evil, lives into his name pretty well. Parents, be careful what you name your kids. And so God's like, dude, you're a brat. I'm gonna kill you. And that's what God does. Then Judah tells his secondborn in chapter 38 verse 8 to go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. This would be done so that the deceased husband would still be honored, and it also served to protect the dignity of the newly widowed wife. But while Tamar and Judah's secondborn are in the middle of getting it on, he pulls out and jacks off on the ground instead of making babies with his sister-in-law. And he does this because if his older brother has male descendants, then he and his own sons won't be able to claim the power customarily given to the firstborn. God, apparently, isn't very pleased with that stun either, so God kills off brother number two. Now that God is two for three with Judah's sons, Judah is getting kind of tired of God killing off his kids, so he comes up with a plan to get rid of Tamar. In verse 11 we read, Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. But as the years pass, Judah never sends Shelah to procreate with Tamar. One thing I think is important for us to observe here is, in whose hands is all the decision-making power? Who decides who marries, when they marry, and whether or not the childless widow gets to have a child or not. Judah, the patriarch. Judah is the primary decision maker, the head honcho, if you will. Even more, as the patriarch, it's Judah's name that will be most celebrated when his nameless wife gives birth to children, or when his kids raise their future families under his name. Clearly, Judah both directs the lives of all those living under him, And he's also the primary beneficiary of everything that everyone else does. Let's not lose sight of this. You may also be familiar with the reality that child-rearing for women in the ancient patriarchal context of the scriptures was the work in which many women found their communal and individual sense of belonging, their identity, their soul life's purpose. Having children particularly birthing male sons, brought great honor, wealth, and potentially power to the male patriarch, the family, and to the community. But having children was also how women literally survived. Being given by one's father to another patriarch 
for the purpose of making babies and contributing to the community's economic livelihood, offered physical protection and security for women that would have otherwise been non-existent had they remained unmarried and childless. I say this not to justify patriarchy and the inequality and violence that constitutes it, but to help us understand what all was at stake for young girls like the one in our story. At the root of it all, Tamar, in the community in which she lives, sees child-rearing as her primary ticket to dignity, respect, and survival. As a childless widow, all of that goes out the window. As a childless widow, Tamar is seen as unusable, unproductive, unprofitable, even, one might say, a burden to society. Tamar, now wearing the symbols of widowhood, starts to be greeted with pity everywhere she goes. But as a childless widow, she knows there's some shame coming from her community too, especially from her family. How else was a young woman to contribute to her own father's legacy if she couldn't do the one thing her society expected her to do? Tamar, under the weight of all this external and internal pity and shame, is pushed to her limits, and she starts to feel desperate. She's had suspicions this whole time that the dishonest, cowardly lion Judah lied to her face and had no plans of having his third-born procreate with her, which would restore her sense of personhood and meaningfulness in the community. And so, when she hears word that Judah was coming nearby the place to which she was condemned all those years ago, she decides to channel her frustration, her woundedness, her anger, into a creative act of resistance. One that would have been seen as sinful, even worthy of death. So, while Judah believed he could simply silence the cry of Tamar by sending her away, Tamar, like many other individuals and communities who have been disposed of and rendered invisible, decides to make her presence and Judah's actions known. Tamar takes off her symbols of widowhood and replaces them with symbols of sex work, a form of labor that would have been thought of as dishonorable to the community, and was also an incredibly dangerous work socially and economically vulnerable women and children like Tamar were often systemically forced into without much of an option. And while temple prostitution, as a largely feminized form of labor, carried a dishonorable social stigma in her community, it's not unimaginable for us to hear someone like Judah, who is known in the community as a godly man of great power, saying to his buddies in the locker room, Hey, boys will be boys. And so the scriptures tell us that Judah approaches Tamar, who is disguised as a temple prostitute, and requests her services. But since he doesn't have any payment on him, he leaves the symbols of his prestige and power, his signet, cord, and staff, as a promise to later send payment. But when Judah's friend returns to pay the temple prostitute, he's told by the townspeople that there never was a prostitute where Judah had said there was. Fearing being mocked or laughed at by the townspeople, Judah hopes this will all wash over and decides not to worry about a signet, cord, and staff. No one 
makes a fool out of a man like Judah. Several months pass, and it's just another normal day for the boss. He's sipping on his morning espresso when the most outrageous gossip scrolls across his Instagram. A picture of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, pregnant and unmarried. Verse 24 reads, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the whore. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As the angry mob is dragging Tamar to her death, she sends word to Judah. In this, in verse 25, is what she says. It was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, Take note, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Boom. Drop the mic. (laughs) Judah is forced to publicly acknowledge his hypocrisy, and Tamar ends up giving birth to twins. Through her act of resistance, that thwarted the life of abandonment and struggle imposed upon her by the person who held the power to do so, Tamar restores her dignity and her sense of belonging within the community, but she also regains access to the necessary means of survival. Okay, but what might the story of Tamar have to do with our workplaces, let alone the reality of unemployment? Let's recall that the decision-making power of the patriarchal family in our story is not equally distributed among its members and contributors, but is concentrated into the hands of the top patriarch. This way of distributing power unequally is not unlike the relationship between employers and employees. In both patriarchal and capitalist relations, while the many contribute to the well-being of the community or enterprise, it's only a few, or in our story's case, a single individual that makes all the important decisions for everyone else involved. And just as the patriarch, Judah, decided whether daughter-in-law, Tamar, would be able to pursue a life of dignity and security, or whether she would become a childless widow, one of the decisions that employers make for employees is whether or not they will be employed in the first place. Think about it. You need the power of capital up front to start a business and potentially survive in the market competition something we'll spend lots of time discussing later on down the road. But for now, if capitalists who have the needed upfront capital decide not to invest or continually reinvest their wealth into creating jobs for wage-dependent folks who are without the wealth needed to purchase the labor of others and the necessary materials used for production, then some of us won't be getting employed. In a capitalist system... It's the minority of folks who possess the necessary wealth and power that create or don't create jobs for the majority who need employment. And this is why unemployment is actually an essential characteristic of every capitalist society, meaning that there's always a portion of the population who, while wanting and needing wages for their survival, is denied employment. Milton Friedman one of the most celebrated defenders of contemporary free market capitalism, 
said that there is actually some mysterious rate of unemployment in every capitalist society that's both healthy and natural. According to Friedman, the reality that some people go without wages both serves the common good and is simply the way things are. But what if there's more to unemployment than freedom's naturalization and legitimation of it? For example, let's consider three occurrences that seem to contribute to the event in which people are deliberately laid off by their employers or intentionally left unemployed. One reason we could imagine an employer might lay off a portion of its already employed labor power is to decrease the overall cost of production so that there can be more profits had at the end of the day. Workers, apparently, want to be paid for at least some of the work they do. But if the board of directors can decrease the cost of labor while maintaining the same level of new value the company produces, those extra profits saved by cutting down on labor costs in a dog-eat-dog world of capitalist competition can really be enticing. Or maybe the employer, in an attempt to cut back on the cost of production, won't just lay off a small portion of the labor force. Maybe they'll lay off entire communities. Consider, for example, the deindustrialization that swept through urban and rural U.S. America in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Boards of directors and major shareholders of all kinds of capitalist enterprises realized they could significantly cut back on the amount they were paying their workers, thus increasing their surplus profits by moving their production sites, like the shoe factory we talked about in episode 2, to other communities willing to work for less. And so, capitalist employers all over the U.S. made the decision to close up their doors in Indiana, lay off their workers in Pennsylvania, and find people who would do the same work, sometimes even more work, for less. And if you want to find cheaper labor, all you need to do is go to communities that are politically, socially, and economically more vulnerable and more desperate. And as we now know today, capitalist businesses and corporations were able to find more vulnerable, less organized communities both in the U.S. and abroad. Social, political, and economic inequality worked in the favor of the employers, not in the favor of the employees, which included, to their own surprise, millions of white, heterosexual, male, breadwinning churchgoers who thought they were closer to their bosses than they really were. A second event that seems to lead to the laying off of workers who are otherwise doing their job well is technological innovation. My partner and I are currently in California as she works as a travel nurse. And just the other day, we were driving off a mountain from a beautiful hike and heading towards the coast when we stumbled upon a Taco Bell that was right on the beach. It was a sight to behold after a day's hike. We decided to watch the surfers and share a cheesy bean and rice burrito. But when we walked into the building, we noticed these big fancy screens near the front desk. Huh, this is how we order the food. How innovative. How convenient for us consumers. I bet the employers had to invest some capital into these new machines. 
But since we will no longer be ordering from a worker behind the counter, I wonder how much they'll be saving in the long run by eliminating some of the cost of human labor. At least a portion of Taco Bell's low-wage workers that span some 29 countries across the globe who are paying bills, saving up for education, paying off debt, and yeah, even probably buying something fun once in a while, are going to be out of an income in the near future. Finally, a third event which seems to lead to significant increases in unemployment as opposed to nature simply having its way is economic downturn. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the 07-08 recession put some 8.7 million U.S. Americans out of work between 2007 and 2010. This particular recession, which eventually impacted the entire world, and by impact, I mean some 20 million were eventually laid off in China, was initially caused by uncontested private banks in the U.S. that basically bundled up packages of working people's debt and sold these large packages to wealthy corporations and individuals who saw the juicy compounding interest accruing from all those bundled up loans as a profitable investment opportunity. It didn't matter whether the people they were loaning to could actually pay their loans off, nor did it matter if it would take a lifetime of 50-plus hour weeks to work off their mortgage, their car loans, their credit. All the investors and private banks saw was a hefty return on their new investments. If you only loaned to people who can pay off their debt fast, or even pay off their debt at all, you're not going to make as much profit as you would if you loaned to people who need to monthly pay off their debts over decades of their life, or folks who will pay on their debt maybe for the rest of their life. I mean, as a bank lender or an investor in those loans, could you imagine all that interest? And when bankruptcies were declared, the speculation game over for private banks and investors, and the economic downturn started to unravel in the U.S., whose incomes stopped coming first? Exactly, those who were employed. And it's not that all the workers of a company, let alone the communities of those workers, came together and collectively decided how they were all going to get through this crisis, since they had all been contributors to the success of the businesses thus far. No, in a capitalist enterprise, the employers are the only ones who make the decisions. Especially when a capitalist crisis hits, the fate of the workers their families, and their communities rests in the will of their employers. I'm not saying the recession that began in 07-08 didn't put employers between a rock and a hard place. I'm just naming the reality that employees had zero power over how their places of employment would respond, while private banks and investors had a behind-the-scenes, may we say, invisible hand in creating the crisis the community-shattering waves of unemployment was but one response of many that the board of directors and major shareholders could have chosen. But as the lived realities of our friends, family, and neighbors alike tell us, they responded with layoffs, as opposed to other solutions that might have been less profitable, 
but could have potentially avoided the unnecessary emotional, psychological, and physical suffering that resulted from the crisis. Just as Tamar had no voice in whether or not she would be disposed of, whether or not the life of a childless widow would be imposed upon her, wage-dependent workers, their families and their communities, have no real power over whether they will be employed by an employer in the first place, or whether they'll be laid off when cheaper labor is found, technological innovation is pursued, an economic downturn grips the anxiety of those who purchase labor power. That's because, as we mentioned throughout episodes 1 and 2, in a capitalist system, the producers are excluded from directing the enterprise. The workers are excluded from the important decision-making. But what if you've never been laid off from work, let alone unemployed during your adult life? Why might this matter to persons who have never felt that their job was at risk, even though employers wield that power over employees every day? At the beginning of the episode, I said that unemployment not only affects the lives of workers that are laid off or the families and communities who are put out of work for longer periods of time, but it also affects the lives of people who are employed, the families and communities of people who have jobs. What if what Milton Friedman saw as natural and simply the way things are is actually created and systemically reproduced for the benefit of a few and at the expense of everyone else? For one, as we've already mentioned, it's obviously more profitable for a capitalist to not employ workers they don't want to, even when they have the money to do so since that would dip into their profit margins. But there might be something bigger at play here, and this is what I really want us to get at. What if unemployment is actually a means of social control, a reality that is used to control and subdue the masses of both unemployed and working people, people perhaps like yourself who have jobs? This is not a new idea. An avid student of capitalism, Karl Marx, who spent his life simply attempting to describe the system of capitalism as best as he could observe, just like Adam Smith and David Ricardo did before him, said that in every capitalist society there seems to be a portion of the population that is unemployed, a group he referred to as the reserve army of labor, a surplus population of labor power that could be tapped into in times of economic upswing and disposed of in times of economic downturn, just like what happened in the 07-08 recession. And to be clear, by surplus population, he means a group of human beings who are extra, an extra people, who can be used or not used whenever people of power want. Let's think about this for a minute. Recall that with the current national rate of unemployment hovering around 4%, which misleadingly includes folks that are employed part-time, half of all U.S. Americans are living in or near conditions of poverty. 14% of the U.S. population is living in poverty, while the bottom 40% virtually have zero wealth at all. This is all from an article published by uh, Common Dreams. How might this unemployed, underemployed, and semi-employed portion of the population be used to hold low-wage working folk hostage? 
If you're a low-wage worker and, say, you'd like a greater slice of the pie that you are helping to create. Basically, you want more of the working hours to go to your paycheck and less of your working hours to be making profits for your employer. How might the presence of an unemployed population who really does want to work be used by employers to prevent you from getting that pay raise? Well, if I was an employer who didn't want to give you a pay raise because that would require dipping into the surpluses you make for me, I would tell you that you can either keep your low wages as they are, or I'll find someone else who will work for those wages. But I, your employer, can only say that to you if there are people out there who currently aren't making any wages, but really want to. No matter how much value they are actually producing, low-wage workers are unable to get significant pay raises because their employers have both the autocratic power to fire them and the access to an extra or surplus labor force that is unemployed and semi-employed, but looking for wages. And then there are full-time middle-wage workers, individuals annually making anywhere between, say, 40 grand and lower six digits. How might a large group of low-wage workers be used by an employer to repress the incomes and benefits of middle-wage workers? Well, if middle-wage employees, and this even includes most managers too, demanded pay raises as they increasingly feel the weight and the stress of keeping up with the bills, paying for their education, paying off a mortgage, saving up for their kids' schooling so that their children won't have to live a life of indebtedness like they themselves have, or even stashing away what little they can for what is more and more being referred to as semi-retirement, employers of middle-wage workers it seems, could easily say, listen, if you don't want to work for what I'm offering, I'll find someone else who makes significantly less than you who is willing to do your job for these wages, or heck, even for less. Here, unemployment starts to seem less like something that is natural, not to mention a reality that serves the common good, and more like a way of systemically controlling both unemployed and working communities who mutually need to sell their labor for wages. Middle-wage workers can't risk taking lower wages. They're held hostage by the reality that a massive portion of the population makes unlivable in lower wages. And low-wage workers can't risk being put completely out of work. They're held hostage by the presence of an unemployed population desperately looking for employment. The exclusive decision-making power held by the board of directors and major shareholders of our workplaces and the businesses that we purchase our needs and wants from, power that employees and communities are excluded from democratically sharing in, has an immense influence over the lives of the majority who are without the power of capital. And as we've begun to see, the well-being of people like Tamar the livelihood of the impoverished and unemployed who are disposed of and thrown away to places of great suffering and bare life is profoundly intertwined with the well-being and livelihood of people who have jobs. The lower and, yes, middle-wage dependent families and communities that are our families, our friends, and fellow members of the body of Christ. Perhaps the townspeople of today 
have more in common with folks like Tamar than they realize. In part two, we're going to posit the idea that capitalist individuals and corporations aren't the only ones who wield the power to create a group of disposable and vulnerable people. In fact, we're going to look at a bipartisan effort that worked to create a disposable group of Tamars right here in the U.S. of A. In part two, we're also going to discuss the fact that different people from different social contexts are unequally vulnerable to things like unemployment, poverty, and other realities that accompany those two. Finally, we'll wrap it all up by reflecting on the theological implications of various responses to capitalism's creation of unemployment and its unequal distribution of power between employers and employees. I hope you'll join me. We'll talk soon.